Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. We started talking about praying for revival, and, and we got into one of the keys. We looked at Isaiah 22, and we compared the uh, life of Shibna, who was a steward in um, one of the, the king's households. I don't remember which one now. But he was arrogant. He thought, I'm going to put my, I'm going to make a, a sepulcher, a grave, so that I'm buried with the king. And God said, no, you're not. You're out. You're gone. And he compared him to um, Eliakim, who his name means God raised him up. Well, we, we stand in the, in the position of an Eliakim. God has raised us up. Paul said in Ephesians 2 that we are seated with him in heavenly places. Not because of anything we have done other than you accept Jesus. You exercise your faith to come into the kingdom. But when Jesus came out of the grave, he saw us in himself and when he went and sat down on his throne next to the father we sat down with him and you need to realize that that is an absolute factual truth for you now it's a positional truth we're seated here we're in the earth we have physical bodies we have physical limitations but spiritually that heaven is your home and if heaven is your home, part of our function is to take heaven and bring it to earth. That is the function of the body of Christ. Bring heaven to earth. And I'll be honest with you, we have, have um, not done a real good job of it. But we are stewards. Stuart had the keys. All this passage came from where Jesus talked to his disciples. He said, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. The steward opened the house in the morning decided who came in, when they came in, who they got to see, what they got to do. And at night, when, when things were going on, they locked the house. And they said, nobody comes in now. Well, we have that authority as Christians in our own lives and in others. We prayed for, for some people that are dealing with addiction. Part of that binding process is we bind that spirit of addiction from coming in and tempting or enforcing their will on another person. As a Christian, you have that authority. Now, keep in mind, in my life, I have absolute authority. Now, I am surrendered to Christ. I'm not talking about that. But no one has more authority than I do about me. I get to decide. Jesus has given me free will. I can obey him, not obey him. How close, how, the, the, the closer I walk to his will, the more blessings I will walk in. But it's up to me to enforce his will in my life. Next to me, I have authority in my spouse's life, in my wife's life. I have authority over her body. Not to, not to dictate to her or be a dictator or say, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. But I have authority, and not only do I have authority, but I have a responsibility to back the devil off of her. That's where my, because I am her servant not her dictator. Part of the reason the Christian church as a whole has a really bad um, um, name in the world, it's why when you read out of Ephesians, wives submit to your husbands, most wives have a hard time submitting to their husbands because their husbands are little Hitlers. You say, oh my, oh me, it's, it's also anyhow. You're going to do what I'm going to do, woman. Yeah, that doesn't work. 
I guarantee you. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work with any human being. We have the power of persuasion, not dictation. But I start that fight in the spirit realm. Next to my wife, I have authority with my children and my grandchildren, my, my immediate family. Farther I get away from me, the less authority I have, but I still have authority. And when it comes to the enemy, I have absolute authority in any circumstance. I can bind, the, the devil himself can appear here. He, the, the tiniest Aubrey, I guess she's upstairs. How old is Aubrey? She's three years old. Aubrey can look the devil in the face and say, you got to go, and he has to go. It, don't, it doesn't take a, a dime's worth of power to back the devil off. But most people think, oh, that's the devil. I don't know if I have that. Well, yeah, you do. You do. You have, you have the keys. But here's the problem. We looked at this last week. Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you. 2 Timothy 3.13, but evil men and and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. There is a great deception in the world today, and it's working in the world, but it's also working in the church, and primarily in the church it's working to convince you that you can't do what God's called you to do. You don't have the chops to do it. You're inadequate. Well, of course you're inadequate. If you could do it, you wouldn't need the Spirit of God on the inside of you to get it done. But you do have the Spirit of God on the inside of you. He created the entire universe. He can take care of your problems. Your problems are nothing compared with taking nothing and making something out of it. You know, it's the old joke. The, 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 the biologist said, I can create a cell. God says, no, only I can create that, create life. And they argue and argue, and finally God says, well, go ahead and do it. And he says, okay, well, I'm going to go in my laboratory and get some dirt and get some chemicals and watch me do it. And God says, no, 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 no. That's my dirt. You go get your own dirt. Go create your own dirt and then come tell me how you're going to create a cell. He made all the stuff. He made us. He can handle what we need. But, but. What we have to watch out for, and this is the, the real deception. This is 2 Timothy 3, 5. I want to just read this. I want to tag this because I want to keep this in mind as we go through all of this. 2 Timothy 3, 5. In, in, in 3, 1, 3, 1, he says, But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. That means fierce, hard to handle, stressful times. Kind of describes our world. Why? For men will be, and he goes through a long list through verses 2, 3, and 4, which we'll get to eventually. But in verse 5, he says, All of these types of people, all of these types of attitudes, have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And from such people turn away. One of the few places where God says, When you meet someone like this, and he's not describing the, the, each individual type in 2, 3, and 4. He's describing people that have an outward appearance, but they don't have the power on the inside. And that is the same word that, that Mark used in Mark 5 when he described the, the woman with the issue of blood who came in and touched Jesus's, the hem of his garment, and Jesus stopped and said, Who touched me? 
And the disciples looked at him like, really, we're in a crowd, you're being thronged, and you want to know who touched you? Yeah, because somebody touched me, and virtue went out of me. Power went out of me. That's the power he's talking about. Paul's talking about the power to change a life. The power of God that will alter you, will recreate you, will make you different, will heal your body, will bring you into the will of God. You can have all of the outward appearances, but if you don't manifest that power and you don't have that power, and when it says deny, that is one of the few places where you have a Greek word that's in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense is is a little... You don't find it often because it means you have made a settled forever decision. God can't change me, or God doesn't exist, or God, God, there, there is a God, but God's far off and he doesn't care about me, and he's not going to get involved in my life. It's a settled thing. I deny it, boom, it's done. Don't ever bring it back up again. This is, we're done with this debate. Those are the people... Let me just change outwardly. Jesus described them. He said, you're like whitewashed tombstones. You look all nice on the inside, but you pry the lid off that. you got a rotten corpse. You're dead. You can clean this thing up. <clears throat> but if you don't have the power of God on the inside of you, and, and, and let me make this clear. When it says having the power of God on the inside of you, it's not talking about Pentecost. It's not talking about being spirit-filled, tongue-talking, lay hands on the sick, power. It's talking about being born again. It's talking about having a recreated spirit on you, and your spirit is joined with the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about, that power to transform you from the inside out. When you find someone like that, stay away from them. Well, how do we know that who that person is? Well, Timothy or Paul goes through the list with Timothy and gives him some things. But we see it other places, too. Paul looked in Romans, and I'm just going to tag a couple of of, of scriptures, and I want to give you a modern-day example, something that just happened this week. In Romans 1.28, Paul has gone through and listed sin after sin, problem after problem in the first chapter of Romans. And in verse verse 28, he sums it up, and he said, Even as they did not retain God in their knowledge... God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And then he lists examples of that. But in verse 32, he said, The same people who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, we see a lot of that out in the world. We recognize it easily in the world. And, and the example I was going to use at, at the University of Denver, which you ought, to, you ought to know right away if you've got a modern university, because they're all pretty weird today. You've got a modern university that's having a conference on faith, you better be really careful. And, and their conference this week they had at the University of, of Denver was Evolving Faith Conference. Well, you're, 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 you can evolve in your faith because your knowledge of God evolves, it grows. And you can, you, when, when, when you come up with situations, you're always faced with a choice, follow God fully, partly, not at all. How you react to that, you will either grow in, or grow in faith or you will pull back from faith. That, that I recognize. But what they're talking about is 
evolving faith means our standard starts changing. Because, you know, this is an old book, and it really doesn't apply to today. And what do they mean? Well, let me, let me, because um, I didn't go watch the conference. I, I'm, I watch a lot of weird things. This one I'm not up to. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm not going to do this. But I did read from, from a, um, a, a lady that was there who was one of the speakers. She wrote a, a synopsis for a Facebook post of it. And, and her talk was, how do you judge a true Christian? And this is from the Evolving Faith Conference. How do you judge if someone is a true Christian? Well, she quoted, and this is, this is where the deception comes in. She quoted Luke um, chapter 6, verse 43 through 46. I'm going to just read through 45 to start with. This is the scripture. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Now, I agree with what Jesus said. Be a fool not to. But how do they interpret? Well, in her interpretation, she kind of tipped her hand where she was going because somewhere in her, and I'm not going to read everything she, she, she wrote, but in, in the midst of it, she did nail on one thing. She said, when you start examining being a fruit examiner, that if, you're, if the person writing the narrative is a white, older male who has privilege, you're probably on the wrong track. Well, when you start assigning people to racial categories to judge them, then I know you're probably not going to be right on target. But this is how she described, these are her words, I'm going to quote her. She said, this is how you des decide whether the fruit of someone's life is, is measuring up to what Jesus said here in Luke 6. She said, when people are flourishing, valued, honored, and restored, there is Jesus. There is good fruit. Can't argue with her so far. Conversely, when those flourishing are primarily in the centered category, not quite sure what that means, but we'll go on, that is at, that is at the expense of someone else, that is not life but death. If human flourishing in any context, a church, a denomination, a business structure, social strata, the justice system, is homogenous, I mean it's equal everywhere, then that is not good fruit. You know, let me, let me, let me take a little time out. I, I grew up in the 60s. I remember when Martin Luther King gave his great speech. I look for a day when my children and my grandchildren are judged by the character of their heart, not the color of their skin. A man's got to be spinning in his grave right now. Because we, we went through a period where that was the goal, and now we're back to judging people by the color of their skin. It's just kind of reversed now to where if you're white, especially if you're white male, you're a dirty dog. So anyway, if, if, if this human flourishing is homogenous, 
then that is not good fruit. That is privilege, and someone else is paying for it. Well, she's right in one sense, because I do have privilege. But my privilege originates from Jesus, and Jesus paid the price, and nobody else could pay that price. And I'm glad I have that privilege. But he opens that privilege to everybody. But let's go on. She says, where is the good fruit? We must look to the margins, not the power brokers. If it is not good news for women, POC, which I had to look that up, that's people of color, the LGBTQ community, people with disabilities, immigrants, the poor, then it is not good news. That is our baseline. The fruit will tell you. So what she is saying is, the Bible may prescribe it. The Bible may say, this lifestyle is a manifestation of your sin nature. But if you say anything or you, you preach anything that, the, that people can perceive, and believe me, it's not, it's not what we preach. I just mentioned one. Paul said in Ephesians, wives submit to your husbands. That's a godly goal. It's a godly command. Doesn't mean what the world thinks it means. It's not a husband staying with a club. It's just being agreeable. That's all it's talking about. But if, 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 if you preach anything that makes women feel threatened or, or somehow put in their place or people of color or the LGBT community or people with disabilities or immigrants, you say anything that hurts anybody's feelings, that's not godly fruit. Well, let me tell you just a point of fact. If you preach the true gospel, you're going to offend people. Jesus preached the gospel, and everybody but the sinners got offended, especially the religious folks. The difference is today, the religious folks are the ones who deny religion. They have, they've made up a new religion, and, and, and their, their Bible is political correctness, and Lord, have mercy. I talked about it last week. You know, when I grew up, there were two genders. There was male and female. Now there's 156 different ones. And nobody can keep up because the list keeps changing constantly. This is the deception that the world sees. It's not hard for us to recognize that as deception. And we can stand back and say, yeah, no, can't go along with that. Those people are deceived. Those people are sinners. It's easy. I can recognize it. When you get as far out as, as, as people are getting today, I mean, you can just get to a point where your ridiculousness is evident to everyone. But here's our goal. This is what Jesus said. This is John 12. We're going to start in verse 44. Then Jesus cried out. He said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Jesus comes right here because... Let me just chase a little rabbit trail. You have to understand, Jesus came to reveal the Father. That was his goal. Now, ultimately, he came to live a perfect life, to die a perfect death and resurrect perfectly. But he said his goal when he was in the earth, his life, was to reveal who the Father was. And then when he departed, he said the Holy Spirit is going to come and the Holy Spirit is going to reveal me. So we have to understand the roles that are played here. And he's saying right here, if you believe in me, it's not just you're believing me. You're also believing in the Father. Verse 45, and he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. 
There's the key. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Singular. That's the white throne judgment. Jesus is not going to judge a soul at the white throne judgment. His word will judge you. That's a little sobering. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak, and I know that His command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Jesus' word is what our standard is, because it's never changing. It's eternal the same way His. He and the Word are one. In fact, John, we're in John 12 there. You go back to John 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus was that Word. And He came into the world to bring the light of the world to the world. But men hid from the light because they loved darkness. <clears throat> it's part of what He's saying. People are, are, are making up all kinds of rules and changing the rules of what sin is and what righteousness is because they're trying to hide from the, the light of the gospel. They don't want to be judged. You get into the Word, the Word will judge you. There are days when it's like, I don't want to open my Bible. Problem is, I've studied it enough, it's already in me, and it comes up and it judges me whether I read it or not. But the problem is, we think... And this is part of our delusion as the church. We think, if I just don't go into the presence of God, I won't get convicted. I won't get judged. No, that's where you go to get free. Amen. Not, you, you don't go into God. You, you, I've said it before, but you go read in Zechariah. Zechariah, the devil drug in Joshua, the high priest, and said, if you looked at your high priest, he's covered in manure. He's dirty from, from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And God doesn't look on his throne and doesn't say, well, get him out of here. You can't come into my presence with dirt. You can't come into my presence covered with manure. I grew up on a farm. But man, when, when we cleaned out stalls in the springtime, I'm telling you what, by the end of the day, you stunk. You did not walk into my mama's house, and we had a concrete floor uh, little room where you were supposed to change your clothes she wouldn't even let us in there she stood us outside stripped us down to our skivvies and took the garden hose and hosed us off before we could go in the house and take a shower thank god jesus doesn't do that we don't have purgatory where jesus is going to hose you off for a couple of thousand years no you go into his throne and he looks at you and he says you're you're a little dirty what's his response he looks at the angel and says, go get a robe. Go get my robe of righteousness. Put my robe on him. Put my ring on his finger. Take that dirty turban off of his head and put my clean turban on his head. God says, come into my throne. I'll clean you up. But the world runs from him because they love the darkness. They don't want to change, so they won't come into his presence. Now, let me go back real quick. We read already Romans 1.28. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And then he summed it up in verse 32. These people, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who do it. 
What we don't do is go to the next verse because it's in a different chapter. And you know, Paul wrote the entire New Testament in chapter and verse. No, he wrote a letter. So Romans 2.1 is the next verse after Romans 1, whatever it was, 32. This is Romans 2.1. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. He's talking to us. He says, you want to get up on your high horse and talk about these people? Bunch of idiots think it's okay to do all this sinful behavior? You want to stand in judgment? I'm telling you, you're as bad as they are because you're standing in judgment. There's only one judge in the world, and it's not even Jesus. He said, I'm not going to judge them. My word's going to judge them. Here's my word. You conform to my word, or the word will condemn you. And in that last day, it's going to be the word that condemns them or, or, or um, <clears throat> puts them with the sheep. That's a sobering thought. Now, you go on down through Romans. Paul said it himself in Romans uh, 7, 24 and 25. He's gone through all the things, the, 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 how the faith of Abraham works, how all of these things work, and a struggle and a can't, and a struggle and a can't, and he wraps it up in verse 24 of Romans 7. He says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then verse 30, 25, he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. I love this. Philip's translation of verse 35 or 25. He says, I thank God there is a way out through Jesus Christ our Lord. The New Living Testament says, thank God the answer is in Jesus our Lord. The Message Translation says, the answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. That's our battle right there. We, we can look in judgment on the world and, and, and all the homosexuals and the perverts and all the other stuff. Oh, thank God I'm not there. It sounds like the publican praying publicly, tooting his horn, saying, God, thank you I'm not like this sinner over here. But I do this and this and this and this, and I have a form of godliness here. Look at me. I'm special. I ride the little yellow bus. Well, if you start thinking you're special, you belong in the little yellow bus. But we also have to understand in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, this is Peter, an apostle. He says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. The faith that we have is the same faith that Peter had. It's the same faith that Jesus had because Jesus didn't operate under his own power. You realize that, right? He had the Old Testament and what he did in his life, he did by the power of the Scriptures, the Old Covenant, and faith in that Old Covenant. He knew who he was. But, but Galatians, Paul says in Galatians that, that Jesus emptied himself of all of his privileges. He was the second person of the Godhead, but he did not operate in the earth as the second person of the Godhead. He was omniscient. He had, he had access to all knowledge if he wanted it, but he didn't operate in that day-to-day. -day. 
He put his omniscience on hold. And he operated as a man in the earth having faith in the written word, the old covenant. And he lived a perfect life living according to the old covenant. And we have that same faith. That's what Peter just said. We've got the same faith Jesus had. We've got the same faith I've got. You've got the same. Don't tell me my faith isn't, isn't you know, I'm, I'm not like Paul. <clears throat> no, you're actually more privileged than Paul because Paul had to write the New Testament, most of it. We've got it all written in 939 different translations. I started to say that's an exaggeration, but I don't think it is. Verse 2, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power. Remember, we read over in 2 Timothy, they have a form of godliness, but they, de they deny the power. This is Peter saying, you've got that power. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. God gave us his promises, and he says, you got the same faith that Jesus had. Now use your faith to get into the promises and extract the power out of the promise that God gave you and use that power and that promise to change your life and to change other people's lives. That's my job. That's my function, and not as a pastor, but as a Christian. Take the power of God that the Word has in it and apply that power first to myself to clean myself up and then apply that power to others who need it that I can influence. And the problem is we're, we're in neutral half the time. Let me show you where, our, where the big delusion is for us as Christians. And I'm already over time, but I'm going to finish this. Matthew 26 Verse 39, the last part of it, and Luke 22, verse 42 is the last part of that verse. Both of those verses describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew he was called to go to the cross. He'd read it in the Old Testament Scriptures. God had revealed it. He was wrestling with his own flesh and his own mind because nobody wants to go deal with the things Jesus is going to have to deal with. He knew what a brutal next few hours he was going to have to face and he pulled back from it and he ended that night of prayer by saying lord i don't want this cup don't want to drink from it because it was the cup of god's wrath he said i don't want to do this but i will take your will over my will i will submit to what you have said i have to do it's a prayer of consecration he consecrated himself to a will that he knew. People, Christians, have taken that verse and they have twisted and perverted that verse to, to, to pray and say, look, I just want whatever God's will is in my life. Well, how will you know what God's will is in your life? Well, whatever happens is God's will. Oh, my Lord in heaven, a two-year-old knows better than that. What you know is God's will is what God says in His Word. 
We just read it earlier in Deuteronomy 28, 61. Every sickness and every disease that's named under that curse of the law, and even those that aren't named, is part of the curse of the law, and it's ours. We have that penalty because we can't keep the law. Paul even quoted it in Galatians. But then in Galatians 3.13, he said that curse was broken by Jesus because when Jesus hung on the tree, he became the curse and broke the curse of the law so that we're free from that curse, which means we are free from sickness and disease. Oh, but brother, you know, God may be trying to teach me something through this cancer. God, God allowed this in my life to teach me a lesson. Oh. You just want to grab your head because mine wants to explode when I hear things like that. What, what that does is it, it puts you over in a position when you take that attitude towards the Word and you take that attitude towards your circumstances. It puts you in a position where you can be totally passive about your circumstances. You can ignore Mark 11, where it says, you speak unto your mountain. Well, how do I speak to my mountain? You find the word that addresses your problem, and you say, sickness, Jesus redeemed me from you. You're not going to impose your will on me. You take poverty, and you say, God said that he'd give seed to the sower. He gave me seed. I sowed the seed. Now, I'm not going to live in poverty anymore. Now, that does not mean that in 24 hours you're going to get a check for a million dollars. It does not mean that if you uh, send in that, that response card to the evangelist and you get through the mail this bottle of special holy water from the Middle East, that you can sprinkle that and all your problems are going to disappear. No, it means you have just picked a fight with the devil, but you have the Spirit of God on the inside of you. Just get into it and whip him. He's already defeated. But you have to take responsibility to take what the Word says and do what the Word says and declare what the Word says in your own life. And then when you start seeing it work in yours, start telling other people what God's done for you. That's your witness. And when they come to it and they say, but I can't do that, then clap your hands on them and pray for them, rebuke the devourer off of their life. Stand in faith with them so that they can start enjoying the same fruit. We cannot be passive. God has not called Christians to be passive and just sit back. Well, that must be God's will because that's what happened. Jesus said it in John 10.10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. You have an enemy in this world, and if you don't stand up to him, he will steal from you. He will not only kill you, but destroy all your stuff. He said, I came to give them life, and that more abundantly. Well, that, that abundant life only comes when you are willing to fight for it. And I'll give you the perfect example. If you've been married more than five minutes, you know if you're going to have an abundant marriage, you're going to have to fight for it. Because there's no two human beings can live together the way a husband and wife live together and not have to struggle. Oh, oh we have the perfect marriage. We never, we never have any conflicts. You know how you have a marriage where you never have conflicts? One of the two spouses is just totally given in and they never express anything that they want. You can have that. But oh my Lord, what a boring life. And what a, total, what, a, what a terrible thing to put, into your, put onto your spouse. 
If you don't give in to me, then you'll see my bad side. Okay. Stand back, because I'm about to clasp hands on you suddenly. Cast the devil out of you, you ornery thing. Let me finish up with these, these couple of verses. This is, this is what we cannot abdicate our responsibilities. James 4, 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee for you. You can submit to God all day, all night. You can pray, you can study, you can do everything. But until you resist the devil, he will not leave your presence. And he will not take your hand, his hands off your stuff or your family or your body. Ephesians 6, 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. If you don't put on that righteousness, if you don't shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, if you don't have on that helmet of salvation, you are going to get beat up constantly. You have to respond to what God said. He, he repeated it. Remember, this, this is a Bible interpretation factoid. When you see God repeat a statement or a thought in just in a couple of verses, he's not stuttering. He's emphasizing this is important. He said in verse 11 of Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God. In verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God. It's the same thought. Why is he saying it again? Because it's vital that you do it. He's repeating it for emphasis. This is my armor that I've got. You know, when, when, when David, Saul was going to put David up against Goliath, he said, here, put on my armor. Well, it didn't fit David. He clanked around because Saul was tall. David wasn't. David was not a great physical specimen of a man. Saul was. And David said, I can't do this. You know, the great news is God's made his armor custom fit for you and it's it's like other things in the kingdom as you grow it grows so it always fits and it always fits perfectly because it's fit just for you and then we have the the, the last one second timothy 3 5 we have a form of godliness but you deny the power from those people stay away so god is saying look you need to get in the fight you need to submit to me and you need to resist the devil. But you also need to stay away from these people. Now, when he says stay away, he does not mean isolate yourself from the world. We need to jump in the middle of the world. But you go in with your, with your weapons exposed. You go in binding the devil. You go in realizing that as you proclaim the gospel, you're going to get persecuted. You're going to get attacked. They're going to come after you. Why? Because they came after Jesus. If you're proclaiming Jesus' word, you're going to get the same thing he got. And you can't go in with the same attitude they have. If you say something towards me, I'm going to get offended. And I will defend myself. That's where the scripture says you turn the other cheek. When you are presenting the gospel, when you are pre presenting God's point of view, you have no right to retaliate. None. None, none, none. When you put yourself out, this, I am a Christian, this is what the Word says, open yourself up. When you get attacked, you cannot answer back. It's forbidden. Now, it doesn't mean you're a pacifist. It doesn't mean you have to throw your guns away. It doesn't mean somebody breaks in your house, you can't defend yourself, defend your family. 
But when you are preaching to people and they come at you, you, the only response you have is to fight the devil that's stirring them up, trying to keep them from the truth. You're shining the light and the cockroaches are scattering and they don't like it. So they will come and attack you. They can't, they, they, they can't have any effect on you. For when they, you're, you're in the armor. You've submitted to God. You're ready to resist the devil. And then you watch him flee. Does it mean it will be fun? Nope. <laughs> I wish I could say it's going to be a piece of cake. It's going to be like picking ripe cherries off a tree. Well, it will be. It'll be like picking roses off a bush, too. Those cherries have pits and the roses have thorns. And you're going to get pricked. And you're going to tromp down on a pit occasionally and think, Oh, Lord, I need that tooth back. But it doesn't mean we don't keep doing it and keep doing it. Why? Because somebody did it for us. Somebody did it for us. That's the only way I came into the kingdom was someone had the guts to preach the gospel to me. And then when I was, was saved and I fell away, I had a lot of people criticize me. I heard it. Some of it was to my face. Never drew me closer to God. Not even a little. When I finally had had it, I was like the prodigal son, when I finally had had enough, I was tired of living in the pig pen, I knew where I could go. I knew where my, my answer lied. And I came back, and I had a church welcome me with loving arms. Said, it's okay. We'll help. We'll clean you up. We'll welcome you. We don't care what you've done. Put it under the blood. That's how we have to be. That's one of the big keys to revival is we have to be able to fight the devil, resist him for the world at, at large. And when we do, we also have to count on God bringing the former rain and the latter rain, which remember, the rain represents his glory. Jesus, remember, in, in one sense, Jesus did not heal the woman with the issue of blood. Her faith tapped into his, the power that was on the inside of him. He didn't even know she was there. So he didn't actively use his faith. She used her faith. If I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And he was full of power. Well, we need to preach the gospel to people look at us and say, can you pray for me? And when, we, when they come, you can say, yes, I can, because I got Jesus on the inside of me. He's changed me. He'll change you. Has nothing to do with me. Has nothing to do with I'm some great guy. Has nothing to do with I'm a great man of faith and power. No, I'm just a man who knows a great God who is very powerful. And the power of God in him will flow out of me into you and it will change you forever. And then you stand just like Paul. Pray Paul's, we'll look at Paul's prayers. <clears throat> I heard of your faith and your love. Now I'm praying for you. We pray people till they get saved. And then, all right, they're in the kingdom. We kept praying for them. <laughs> That's when you start praying for them because they've just drawn a big bullseye on their back. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.